The text for today will be Proverbs 24, verses 10 through 12. If you'll turn with me there, Proverbs chapter 24, verses 10 through 12. Starting in verse 10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will not he and will he not repay man according to his work? Today we are going to break our normal pattern of exegetically walking through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. If you've been with us for some time, you know we've been in Hosea. And we will pick up our series in Hosea again next week. But today, historically, is when the church will take a Sunday aside to specifically address the issue of the sanctity of human life. This is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Either this weekend or next weekend, all across the nation, various churches will take time to address this issue from the pulpit. And I think it's fair to ask the question, why do we address this issue? We're not by any means a church that will typically go through topical series or address the latest trends that are going on in the world. So I think it's a fair question, and so I want to give some reasons as to why we are going to take time out of our normal pattern of exegeting the text and walking through why I think it's an important issue to address. Why is sanctity of life so important that we're going to take a whole Sunday just to address this issue? There's really three reasons why I decided that this week it would be fitting for us to go ahead and take time to unpack a biblical worldview on the sanctity of life. The first reason has to do with the unity of the church on this issue, the unity of the church. There are many things that the church in the West can disagree on. There are many convictions, many issues of secondary and tertiary theological importance that we can have unity over but have disagreement on. But on this issue, if you are a Christian and you believe the Word of God is found in Scripture and that Scripture is infallible and inerrant and true, there is no way that you could not believe in the sanctity of human life. This is a primary issue in regards to the authority of Scripture. God has clearly spoken through his word and revealed through his word the truth of this, and the church reflects that belief. Like I said, we are not the only church who's going to take time this weekend and next to address this issue. And so we want to stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder, with brothers and sisters in Christ in the Indianapolis area and all across America to fight on this battle line against the forces of darkness. The culture is speaking loudly about this issue. The church is going to hold the line as well. There is unity in the church body over this issue. The second reason I found it to be important to address is in regards to the prevalence of the problem specifically in our context. The problem is extremely pervasive in cities, in America, really in the West. In countries and in situations where the sanctity of life is no longer valued, specifically here in the last 60 years, 60 million young babies and infants have been aborted. Legally, under government sanction and legally protected through federal funding. 60 million babies have been killed in our context. And if you live in America, you can't get away from that. If you're a Christian in America, this is your problem too. And as easy as it is for us to try to ignore it and to go to our jobs and pretend like it doesn't exist, this is a very prevalent problem in our culture. So that is another reason why I found it fitting for us to address it because you're going to bump into this where you're at in your context. 
And the third reason I found it important to address is in regards to the clarity of the word on this issue. As I mentioned earlier, the church has unity on this issue, and the primary reason the church has unity is because the work, the word is speaking powerfully on this issue. I had a lot of texts that we could have picked from to look at today, primarily, and we're going to look at many of those texts in the coming moments. But the word speaks loudly in the terms of the value and the sanctity of individual human life. God values human life. And so you can't read the Bible and not interpret that as a worldview that values humans and values human lives. In fact, if you read the Bible and you hold the position that human life does not hold sacredness, it is not uh, sanctified by God, you need to do some serious gymnastics in order to interpret the text, or you can be honest with yourself and outright dismiss the fact that you believe that the Bible really isn't the Word of God. Those are really your only two options. But you can't honestly say that what the Scripture teaches does, is not in regards to human life being sacred and holy to our God. This is so clear, in fact, that in early Christian teachings, as early as the first century, by the way, that's before we had the canon officially assembled, all 66 books of Scripture officially agreed upon by the church. In the first century, there was a document called the Didache, and in this document, there is a direct teaching of the early church, and it reads like this. Do not murder a child by abortion, nor kill it at birth. Scripture was so clear, and the documents that they did have as canon were so clear, that this was a standard orthodox early church teaching on the sanctity of human life. Do not murder a child by abortion. You can't get any more clear than that. It is clear what Scripture teaches on this. Even in our own denomination, the CMA, they released a statement on the sanctity of human life dating back a few years, and it reads like this. The Word of God teaches that each individual is known by God before the foundation of the world. Our omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God has pronounced his blessing upon the life of a child. Since all life exists for God's purposes and all human lives are equally sacred, it is our belief that the life of an unborn child is blessed by God and must be preserved and nurtured. The CMA, that is the Christian and Missionary Alliance, is opposed to induced abortion. These are clear statements of truth. And I happen to agree with both of those statements. But for a moment, let's just say that it doesn't really matter, honestly, what the CMA has to say on this issue. It actually doesn't matter what the early church fathers had to say on this issue. It matters exclusively and wholly what the Word of God has to say on this issue. If God has spoken, it doesn't matter what any man has to say on this topic. When God speaks, we listen. The sanctity of life, therefore, is not a political issue. It's not an academic issue. It's not an intellectual debate. The sanctity of life is first and foremost primarily a theological issue. What you believe about God determines what you believe about the sanctity of human life. Romans chapter 3 verse 4 says it this way, let God be true though everyone were a liar. So if every single person in the United States and every single person across the world all agreed that abortion was okay and that you could go ahead and do this, no moral repercussions, no moral problems with that, if they all stood on one end of a tug-of-war rope and pulled against God, the creator of the universe, God still wins. His word still stands. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And the CMA statement on abortion and the early church father statement on abortion, both of those are true so far as the fact that they just reflect what the Word of God already teaches on the subject. So we're going to take a look tonight specifically at what the Word of God has to say. We're going to unpack our theology on the sanctity of human life. And the first point that I would like to look at is that the Bible teaches that it is God who creates all life. 
If you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and we will be in verse 25. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 25. Reads like this, And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So here you have God, the creator of the universe, creating all life. And then it continues in verse 26 with a unique act of creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Man was a unique act of creation. And it continues in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God uniquely creates man. He creates all life, but he uniquely creates man, specifically imprinted with his image on it. The doctrine that this unpacks is the imaho dei, that all man carries the signifier of God, the image of the invisible God, is imprinted on every single human being. God creates all life, and he uniquely imprints his image on man. This is the basis for the Christian understanding of the sanctity of human life. Man carries the image of God, and so therefore man's life is sacred. God is uniquely involved not only in the original act of creation, as we just read in Genesis, but God is involved uniquely in every creation of a human life. We do not believe in deism, where God winds up the clock and then lets the earth run its course, following a series of natural processes that he's already put in place. God is intimately involved in his creation every step of the way. Psalm 139, verse 13 says, For you formed my inward parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. The poetic expression here is that the psalmist was literally pieced together bit by bit by God himself in the womb of the mother. That God was intimately involved in the creation of this human soul. This is what scripture teaches. By the way, this is 3,000 years before any medical technology would even begin to unpack the fact that we can confirm life exists inside the womb. Before we knew about DNA and genetic testing, before we had ultrasound, before we had any way of actually understanding whether there was life inside the womb or not, the psalmist says, by the way, there is life inside the womb. So once again, science is catching up with the word of God. You formed my inward parts. God is uniquely involved in the creation of a human being. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 5. Hannah is mourning and lamenting the fact that she cannot have offspring. And she, uh, the narrator depicts the story and says it this way, that the Lord had closed her womb. So by a negative example, we know that if God is intimately involved in every act of human creation, every human life, then every person who is unable to bear children, unable to have offspring, it is the direct intervention of the Lord that keeps them from having that offspring. The Lord had closed her womb. We have a similar picture in Genesis chapter 16, verse 2, where Sarah laments, the wife of Abraham, she laments the fact that she cannot have a child, and she is barren, and she says, quote, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. The Lord prevents her from bearing children. That means that by two negative examples, we know that God is both intimately involved in the creation of every human life and intimately involved in the prevention of bearing human life. We are not biological accidents. This is not a series of random events. This is not a matter of chance. This is the sovereign hand of the eternal God at work 
in creation. And he is always a creator, so he never stops with his creation. And not only does God create all life, not only does all life bear his image, but God is sovereign over the creation of all human life. So to end human life or to challenge God's creation in that human life is a direct act of rebellion against the sovereignty of God himself. That somehow God screwed up with this pregnancy. That this one wasn't supposed to happen. I want you to know that there is no such thing as an unplanned pregnancy to the creator of the universe. God is sovereign over the creation of all human life, which means a few things for us. That means that human life is valuable because it bears the image of God. This is what makes human life valuable. This is the basis for the sanctity of human life. And the second thing that we have seen from these texts is that human life begins at conception. At conception. And again, science has caught up with this over time. We know that upon the conception act, when conception happens, that this is now a unique biological human. And there's no one who believes in abortion that, that can honestly argue even to this day that the science is with them on this. In fact, they have to concede many of these points saying things like, well, it might be life, it might even be human life, but that doesn't necessarily make it a person which means it doesn't necessarily have all the rights of a person. But they still know that the science is stacked against them. And the very people who claim to stand on the backbone of science with regards to abortion have to jump out of that boat and go into the realms of philosophy and really mysticism in order to argue their points any further. Human life begins at conception. And God sovereignly ordains every single pregnancy to occur. Because you can see two finite humans can come together and they can donate DNA from the father and DNA from the mother and they can create the physical human body, but only God can create the eternal human soul. So in every act of creation, every single human who's ever been born on the face of the earth, their body is, yes, from mother and father genetically, but there's something spiritual that is happening there as well, which is that God is uniquely creating a human soul as well. So in every act of conception, God is intimately there creating. We are not accidents in history. We are not the most evolved of the other mammals on planet Earth. We are not the result of cosmic explosions and cosmic dust with chemicals floating through space and really time plus chance given enough opportunity will make us eventually. We have a morality. We have the very image of God imprinted in us. Human life is valuable. All the way starting at conception and leading over into natural death. Because God is sovereign over life. So it is God who gives life and it is God who ultimately takes away life. But God is sovereign over the whole life. And we as humans do not get to push God out of his throne, go ahead and sit up there, and decide when life can begin and when life can end. That is not our responsibility. We are not God, although we often try to be like God in many ways. And yes, this also extends to those who are disabled. From conception to natural death, that life is sacred as well. If you'll turn with me to Exodus chapter 4, we're going to look at one example in which God says, by the way, even the disabled, I'm sovereign over that act of creation as well. Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. Moses is going back and forth with God at this point, and his final uh, protest is that, God, you've called me to speak, but actually I stutter. So I can't do what you're asking me to do. And the Lord has this to say, starting in verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? That answer is obvious, isn't it? Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? 
Is it not I, the Lord? Who makes the disabled? Is it not I, the Lord? Who makes man exactly as they are? Is it not I, the Lord? And Jesus will come about in the New Testament, and when he's dealing with man who's been paralyzed since birth, he says that this was done so that the very glory of God might be revealed through this man. It is God who sovereignly decrees every single human life, and it is because God uniquely decrees it that every human life is valuable, regardless of what they can contribute to society, regardless of how much of a burden or a benefit they are to any other individual human. Even the disabled have this extension of the sanctity of human life. And then we're going to argue this finally, that if life begins at conception, and every human life is sacred, if life begins at conception, then abortion is, is the murder of a child. It's nothing less than murder. Because murder is the taking of a life. It is the destruction of another life. It is the marring of the very image of God himself. It's murder. You see, in the church, we believe in the sanctity of life ethic, which teaches that every life is valuable no matter what it contributes. If it's a human life, it is sacred according to God's decree. But in the West, we have moved away from the sanctity of life ethic over to what is called a quality of life ethic which says that the human not only needs to be alive, it not only needs to be human, but it needs to bring some other intangibles to the table, some other qualities, in order to have protections as a person. There's a difference, according to them, between a life and a person, between a body and a person. That to qualify as a person, which, by the way, a person is the one who gets the legal protections of a human being. To qualify as a person, you need to have certain intangibles. And there's been all kinds of crazy things that have been proposed to meet personhood. Such as you need to have a certain IQ, or you can only have these kinds of disabilities and you can still be a person. But if you have these other kinds of disabilities, you don't qualify actually as a person. And so many of the abortions that are carried out are carried out because of these things that could disqualify from someone from being a person, and so therefore you can end that pregnancy because they didn't actually meet the qualifications for personhood. There's a difference between a life, apparently, and a person. And this is the same argument that the Nazis used in their concentration camps when they were killing disabled people in the gas chambers. By the way, years before they were killing the Jews in those same gas chambers. And if you were to ask them why they did that, it was because, quote, that life is not worth living. So therefore, we have the right to terminate it. It didn't actually measure up to the standard that we set. And you can start there, and eventually it bled, as it did in Nazi Germany, over to the Jewish people who were killed in those same gas chambers. And when you were asked Nazi guards at these prison camps, at Auschwitz and these other camps of internment, why they were okay with the slaughter of all of these people, they said it's simple. It's because they're not people. They might be human. I'll give you that. They might be human, but they are certainly not people. According to the quality of life ethic, there is a difference between a human life and a person. And you need other intangibles to measure up. But the Bible does not teach that. As Christians, we stand firmly against that. Some other arguments that are used to defend the option of abortion is people will say, we're really, we're not pro-abortion. We just want people to have the right to choose. We just want women to have the right to choose, you know, all of their options. But you know, as well as I know, that however many liberties I might be given under the law, my rights and my liberties end where they begin to infringe on your rights and your liberties. This is why, as a society, we can unequivocally say that rape is wrong. If you ask someone to explain to you why they believe rape to be wrong, it's easy. It's because it violates another person and their rights. 
And no matter what the person who is the attacker in that situation feels, their rights and their liberties and their freedoms terminate exactly upon where they begin to infringe on another person's rights and liberties. My rights end where the rights of another individual human begin. And so, because we know scientifically that the baby in the womb is genetically unique from the mother, it is its own body, it is not the body of that mother, my body, my choice, as a phrase, doesn't hold up because it's not your body. It's actually the body of another life that's busy developing. It's not the woman's body that is being terminated because if it was the woman's body that was being terminated, that woman would leave dead if it was her body that was being terminated. But it's not. She gets to walk away. And the body that was terminated, the other body that was growing and developing inside from her, is ripped out limb from limb and assembled next to that operation table like a jigsaw puzzle to make sure that all the different pieces are there and nothing from that body was left inside the woman's body. They're two different bodies. They're two different people. They're two different souls. It's not the woman's body. Babies inside the womb vary from babies outside the womb in really only four ways. Based on their location, based on their size, based on their level of development, and based on their dependence upon another person. And none of these can logically hold up as a reason to kill anybody else. You cannot kill someone if they're in one location as opposed to if they're in another location. If I'm in one room, you can't kill me legally but if I'm in another room, you can't. We know that that's crazy. So location doesn't hold up logically. Based on size, we know as a society we can't kill people if they're shorter than others or smaller than others because the only thing separating children from fully grown adults is their size, and the only thing separating short people from tall people is their size. And so size isn't a logically consistent way to kill people. That's not a good reason to end one life. Their level of development, well, you know, as well as I do, that humans don't stop developing after they're born. Their level of development increases rapidly from the whole first year of life into the second year of life, into their first 10 years of life, into adolescence. And you know that your brain doesn't fully stop developing up until 25, 26. And so if you could terminate a life based on the fact that it wasn't fully developed yet, then everyone who's... 26 and younger has a cause for concern because by that same logic and the extension of that logic their life could be terminated as well and their level of dependence on another that's not a good reason to end a life because just after a baby's born it's still dependent on the mother when a baby is growing up it is still dependent on the family for support and care and by the way, when you grow into your life and you get to the other end of your life, into your elderly years, you know that this swings back and you become once again dependent on your family, dependent on the society. So your level of dependence is not a good reason to terminate a life. And the extension of this logic that you need to meet certain criteria in order to qualify as a human means that once people on the other end of their lives begin to become a burden to society, we can terminate them as well, and that's another topic for another day. But as a society, we are already going in this direction, where if someone is too much of a burden on the medical system, we can end that life as well. It's too resource intensive. But I want you to know, the, in the war of ideas, really the, the people who are anti-abortion and pro-life have really lost the war of ideas as far as it comes to womanhood. Often it gets said that we are the ones who are anti-woman because we don't want them to have rights. And the pro-abortion crowd, those who are pro-choice, are really the ones who are for the women. But I want you to know that's not true. In the early days of Christianity, it was in fact the Christians' opposition to abortion that made them so attractive to women because it saw them as uniquely valuable and uniquely beneficial 
in creation. God has uniquely created women for a certain role in all of redemptive history. Women have a unique contribution that they bring to society. And if you tell young women all the time that in order for them to be all that they are as a woman, they need to be exactly like a man, what you're telling them is to, in order to be a woman, they need to stop being like a woman. And this is what modern feminism has done. If you want to be all that you are as a woman, you need to ascend in your career. And in order to ascend into your career, you need to push off having children. You need to take hormones to suppress your natural body's functions that is begging you and trying to have kids in your child-rearing years from 20 to 30 years old. And this society tells you that if you really want to be a woman, you really want to be all that you are as a woman, you have to actually become like men. And all of the things about you that make you a woman are actually bad things. And so you need to conform your body to society's standards. Those are not people who love women. Those are people who hate women. In fact, when it comes to abortion, women are the ones who always lose. In societies that allow abortion to take place, such as China, female babies are aborted at an astronomically higher rate than male babies. Women always lose. Women in the womb are the most uh, poorly protected when it comes to abortion. They are the ones who always lose. And by the way, this extends not only to societies like China, but also to America, where women are still aborted at a higher rate than men. Modern feminism and those who are pro-choice actually hate women because they see being a woman as a disadvantage in terms of your career. They see it almost as a disability in terms of you being all that you can be. And so being a woman is actually a liability, according to them. But I want you to know Scripture has something else to say about womanhood. God celebrates womanhood. Women are unique in their role and responsibility in creation. Women are a unique part of the creation story. And women have a unique role to play. And as a society, we should celebrate that role and rejoice in that role and protect that role and not demean it and see it as worthless and tell young women and catechize them into believing that they need to be something else in order to be valuable. They can be exactly who God created them to be and fully embrace that and fully rejoice in that. In fact, women are so valuable that if you just get them away from the role that God gave them, you can absolutely crumble a society. And it is because that life is valuable that we who hold to the position of the sanctity of human life must also affirm with according to that same doctrinal teaching, not only does God create life, but God also protects, protects that life by virtue of his law. God not only creates life, but he protects that life by virtue of his law. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, we get this command, that whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. It is because man bears the very image of God that if you, as a man, take the life of another human being, you have now forfeited your right to live as well. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. This is God saying that if you murder someone else, if you take another human life, you have forfeited yours as well. Because to take a life is to spit in the image of God and to mar it. Unless you think that that's just Old Testament teaching, Jesus when he's being taken away by the mob, about to be delivered before the Roman authorities, tried, and then crucified on a cross. During that whole altercation, one of his disciples takes out a sword and cuts off the ear of one of the people who's there to take Jesus into captivity. 
And Jesus takes that ear that was cut off and puts it back on that person and heals them. And then he turns to his disciple, Peter, and he says, all who take the sword shall perish by the sword. That is a direct statement, word for word, from Genesis 9. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. All who take the sword shall perish by the sword. He is reaffirming that law, that Peter, if you take life, you will die because you are going to mar the very image of God. All who take the sword shall perish by the sword. So not only did God teach this originally, but God is consistent, and Jesus affirmed that same teaching in the New Testament. And we know that murdered blood that has been taken, innocent blood that has been taken, cries out to the Lord. In Genesis 4.10, after Abel has been slain by Cain, God shows up to Cain and he says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That Cain's blood is screaming out to God, crying for justice. In Psalm 106, verses 37 and 38, if you'll turn there with me, Psalm 106, 37 to 38. The Israelites are sacrificing their children. And it causes quite a problem for them. In verse 37, it says this, They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, and the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land, it was polluted with blood. The land was polluted with blood. That word polluted means stained. A stain that you can't quite wash off. The blood of these innocent children soaked into the ground and sat there, waiting for justice. And God sends his justice on them. In 2 Kings 24, verses 3 through 4, you get the account of the fact that Assyria comes in and takes all the Israelites captive. And one of the reasons it gives in that section of Scripture for why the Israelites have been taken captive into Assyria is because they have spilled innocent blood in the land, the murder of their sons and daughters. So God affirms the fact that human life is so valuable that it must be protected. If life is valuable, you must treat it as such and protect it as such and defend it as such. Proverbs six sixteen through 17 says that there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. The Lord hates hands that shed innocent blood. And so by his law, he has a punishment for hands that shed innocent blood. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. And this extends even further, not only to the person who vengefully wants to shed blood, but also to the one who gets paid to shed innocent blood. Deuteronomy 27.25 said, Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood as do those who work in abortion clinics who get paid to perform operations and rip out babies from inside the mother's womb. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, who gets paid to do so. And again, we know that the baby is uniquely a life and that life is uniquely protected by God because in his law, he gives us an example of what you ought to do if a baby is killed inside the womb of a mother. Turn with me to Exodus 21, verses 22. We're going to start in verse 22. Exodus 21, 22. And we're going to get an example of case law, which explores a scenario, and then God gives an example of how you are to handle such a situation. In Exodus 21, 22, it reads, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. So on a pause there. Some of your Bibles might read at that point that, that he will hit the children and cause a miscarriage. That's a bad translation. The word in Hebrew there never gets translated miscarriage in all of Scripture. It always refers to a live birth. So then what we're referring to here is 
two men fighting. They hit the one woman, either on purpose or not on purpose. And the baby, it, it causes premature labor and delivery. And these babies are born live out of the woman. And the, so there shall be a fine imposed on the man who hit her and caused the children to come out. Just for the fact that he caused the premature birth. And then it continues in verse 23, but if there is harm, that is, if there is harm to the child, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If there's anything that's wrong with that child, you, the assailant of that woman, whether accidental or non-accidental, pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That baby is protected legally in the same way that a real human life is protected legally, which by extension means that that baby inside the mother's womb is still a human life and deserves every protection that a fully formed human deserves, according to case law in the Old Testament. And we know that government is the one who is responsible for defending these innocent lives. Romans 13.4, Paul teaches us that the government does not carry the sword in vain, for he is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Government does not bear the sword in vain. So government is responsible for carrying out capital punishment when another life is taken. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. This is not individual people creating a revenge plot and continuing a cycle of vengeance. This is government with the solemnly sworn and ordained duty by God himself to enact his vengeance and his justice on those who take innocent lives. God has ordained government as his servant. But God also extends his forgiveness to those who have partaken in abortion, who've had an abortion, who have any way coerced someone into having an abortion. God extends his forgiveness. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who stand as blood-bought sons and daughters of the king. There is no condemnation, which means there's no condemnation for any reason at all. Abortion is a wicked sin, but it is not an unforgivable sin. God, through his Son, has paid the price for all of the sins of the world. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you confess this sin to the Lord, you confess the sin of abortion, and you repent of that sin, you will not be condemned for it. But you must confess the sin and you must repent of the sin. Don't make excuses. Don't try to rationalize it. Throw yourself before the very mercy of God, who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God is able to forgive abundantly. Abortion is wicked, but it is not unforgivable. And God extends mercy to those who have fallen into this sin and chosen this sin. He still extends mercy and forgiveness. So what then are we to do as Christians in America who live in a society that partakes in abortion daily? I want to turn back to the core text for this morning. Uh, Proverbs 24, 10 through 12. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. I'm going to pause there. If you're a Christian and you know what the Bible teaches on abortion, it's not enough for you to hold that conviction in coffee shops when you're talking to other Christians. It's not enough for you to hold that conviction in church when you're surrounded by a bunch of people who agree with you on the issue. Because, according to verse 10 of chapter 24 in Proverbs, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. If you back down from what you believe on abortion and you become silent 
on the day of adversity, your strength is small. If you go out into your workplace and you don't speak loudly according to how God speaks loudly on this issue, for fear of man, if you faint on the day of adversity, your strength is small. We all know it's easy to stand boldly under conviction when there's no one who disagrees with you, when you're in the majority. But if you go out into culture and society and you back down from what you believe or you become silent in what you believe, even though you know the word of God clearly teaches it, you are the person who faints in the day of adversity and the person whose strength is small. But it continues with a command. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. This command is straightforward. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. As Christians, if we're going to fight for the rights of the unborn, we need to do so at the front lines of that battle. At the very same clinics where lives are being taken away, we are called to rescue those who are being taken away to death. That is the mother who might have been led astray and coerced by family and friends or boyfriend in order to have the abortion. We are called to rescue those who are being taken away to death. And rescue carries with it a connotation of not just saving temporarily, but saving long-term, which means if you turn someone away from an abortion clinic and you convince them not to have an abortion, you better be ready to rear that child yourself. If you save the child from the clinic, you better be ready to adopt it, to make a spare bedroom in your house for the child and for the mother, to protect them as your own, because we are called to rescue, which carries with it a connotation of not temporary saving, but long-term saving, to rescue those who are being taken away to death. As a church, we cannot be numb to this. As Christians in a society that partakes and celebrates in this, we cannot be numb to this. We are to rescue those who are being taken away to death. We need to get involved in this ministry. And as a church, earlier I asked us to uh, fast and to pray for the next two weeks about what the Lord would have you specifically do as a ministry in your time in Indianapolis and wherever you are contextually at now. What ministries can you get involved in? I know as a church there are a bunch of ministries that we want to get involved in, but of first importance, given our cultural context, would be ministries such as adoption, which directly save children from abortions because you can put them up for adoption and you can have loving families take them under their wings. And secondly, the actual frontline battle at the clinics themselves. And there's a right way to do this and there's a wrong way to do this. And so we're going to pray and fast and we're going to educate ourselves and we're going to learn what is the right way to do this. But name, make no mistake, we have to do something. We are called to rescue those who are being taken away to death. There are three clinics in the Indianapolis area that partake in the national killing. These three clinics are responsible annually for 8,000 abortions. Just those three clinics. The national number is totals over 60 million dead babies since the Roe versus Wade case. In fact, in the early days of COVID, COVID was actually saving American lives, not taking them. Because in the early days of COVID, it shut down the abortion clinics. And so as bad as COVID is, by God's sovereign providence, it was saving lives, not taking them. As a young church, we need to get involved, and it is not enough for us to know the truth and to do nothing. Because as verse 12 says in this proverb, if you say, behold, we did not know this, is that really going to hold up? Behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? 
And will not he repay man according to his work? Will not he repay man according to his work? It's not good enough to say we didn't know or we were blind to it. In James chapter 2, verses 14 and 17, James says that faith without works is dead. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Does that faith mean anything if his works don't back it up? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You are bearing yourself out to be a fraud if you are someone who says, I believe abortion is wrong, and that's all you do about it. It's not what we preach from the pulpit. It's what we tolerate out there in the culture. It's not what we say. It's what we do. It's not that the works themselves save us. The works prove that what we say with our mouth and what we believe in our heart is really true because our actions follow our belief. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of conviction, we do the actions that we do. And so therefore, if we hold these truths to be true according to God's sovereign decree, then we must act. We must do something. As Christians, we must defend and uphold the sanctity of human life because God upholds and defends it. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word this evening for us. Lord, I pray that we would come under conviction of the Spirit in order to be filled, that we would be empowered and emboldened to stand for what we know to be true according to what your word says to be true. Lord, I pray that we would not be able to leave today and return back to our normal lives and forget what we have just heard. Lord, this is not a sermon that has to do with us navel-gazing at ourselves and trying to walk closer in holiness. This is a sermon that is calling us to battle against the forces of darkness, to advance your kingdom forcefully. We advance your kingdom forcefully because you have given us strength and might and valor and your very spirit itself to wage war against darkness. And so we must advance. Lord, I pray that you would bring us under that conviction, that you would allow us to examine our own hearts and our own motives on this issue, and as we fast and pray that you would open doors and opportunities and work through us to be your hands and feet, not for our glory, but for yours, Lord God for yours. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.